remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him twice and uh, once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they are lacking nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, this Sunday, uh, we are launching into our last week uh, in the book of Titus. We've been in a five-part series called Building Your Life on the Lord, where Paul has written a letter uh, to his young protege, Titus, to help him develop and grow and mature the church on the island of Crete. And he spent a, a lot of time trying to help them see that their philosophies, their beliefs, and their actions in Christians should be much different than the lives of the local Cretans. He's done a lot of work in just two chapters to make sure that their faith, the Christians, is sound. He's making sure that they understand what it would mean to, to build up and identify the right leaders within the church. And then he's just spent a whole chapter helping them discern between good doctrine and bad doctrine. He's laying this foundation for what a Christian's life should be built on so that it will result in something specific. And that specific thing is good works. Paul is saying that there's no option for knowing and believing that doesn't include good works. Real life change exists, and it should be lived out based on the foundation that we have in Christ. In other words, if something good is built, it should also be used. So think of it this way. Um, I have six brothers, uh, all seven of us. So from my oldest, there's five above me, one below me. Between all seven of us is just 10 years. I know some of you are going to try to do the math 
It's crazy. My mom was either pregnant all the time or had a newborn all the time for those 10 years. But we all are cram-packed in there. And we grew up in the, on the central coast in a city called Santa Maria. And we had a four-bedroom, two-bath house. And uh, we lived in it. We loved it. We were, we were crowded. We were on top of each other. We got into a lot of arguments and a lot of fights. My mom told us to go outside often. And around the time that my oldest brother, Jeff, was in uh, going into junior high, and, my young, and I was about four or five, my parents decided that we needed a little bit more space for all nine of us. And so instead of looking into the housing market for a new home, they decided that the best option would be to add an addition above our garage. And so I, I, I remember this process. I talked with my mom this past week. And I'm like, are all these things true? Because I'm going to say it in front of people. And she's like, yeah, you got it. I don't know how you remember that when you're four or five. So some of you who know me are like, he doesn't remember anything. How is he remembering this? But um, so I, I remember that they had to call an architect to come and even find out if the foundation uh, would hold an addition above our garage. Uh, I remember that our, our contractor's name was Mark Rich and his name is Mark with a C and that's the, how he was, my younger brother Mark is actually named after him. Uh, and he came and he thought through all the plans uh, of what it would look like to have this addition on above our garage, which included three bedrooms and one bathroom. He even thought about how to design the walls in such a way that all the walls could be removed and it could be turned into one giant room if my parents ever decided. And my parents still, my mom still lives there today. And so, uh, and then I remember there's this issue with the stairs. Uh, they were, it was really, because of where it was put above the garage, they had to, they had to really have this one little area to make the stairwell, stairwell get up to the second story. And it was almost too narrow uh, for it to pass, to, make, to actually for us to be able to use it. And so our, our contractor actually had to design this special uh, railway along the wall so that we would have enough clearance to get up and down. And we surely went up and down those stairs. And so, um, and, and we lived in that house. I remember Mark, our contractor, decided to throw us a barbecue <laughs> to say congratulations on this new house that actually can fit your, house, your whole family in it. So we went to his house and we celebrated. And he's like, now you guys get to have this home that you can live in. And that's what we did. We lived in it. We played ball inside when we weren't supposed to. We broke things that we weren't supposed to. And all of us said it was not me. My mom was like, not me. He's here a lot in our house. And I'm like, yeah, not me does it a lot. So friends came over. They had sleepovers. We loved playing baseball in the front yard. Uh, it was just a, a great house uh, for our family. But I want you to imagine what if we went through all that work, all that trouble, my parents endured that cost and that sacrifice, and we didn't use the second story? What if we just left it there and it didn't change anything about the way that we lived? What if we just kept living in the downstairs room? We came back from that barbecue and my parents were like, ah, just kidding, you guys don't really get an upstairs. You'd probably think a lot of things about us and none of them would have been very nice, but you'd at least have to ask the question, why would you build a second story house and not use it? Well, that's really the question Paul is getting at in chapter three of Titus for us when it comes to our faith and our belief in Jesus. Why would we go through all the effort to know sound doctrine, to know Jesus, to trust in the gospel, and we don't use that faith in real life? Because as it's written in James chapter two, faith without works is what? It's dead. 
And Paul is arguing the same point here. In the book of Titus, he uses the phrase good works connected with sound doctrine six times. And three of them can be found just in this chapter. And he's telling us that what we do with our faith is just as important the faith as just as important as the faith we have. He wants us to be faithful, but he wants us also to be fruitful. There is no or option here. You can't just be faithful or just be fruitful. They go together. This is not a suggestion. Paul is telling us that we need to have both of these to truly be a fruitful, practicing Christian. And really today's message is a continuation of last week's message. Uh, Brian did a great job of walking us through how to discern sound doctrine and why it's so important that we're building our life upon it. And in that chapter, verse 15 of chapter 2, Paul writes that we are to declare these things, that we're to exhort, we're to rebuke with all authority, that we're not to let anyone disregard us. And what he's getting at here is that he expects Christians to walk this, their faith out in real life. It doesn't matter how counterfeit it is. It doesn't matter, or counterculture it is. It doesn't matter how difficult it is. He didn't want them to be quiet about it. He didn't want them to be ashamed of it because the beliefs and lifestyles that they were supposed to live as Christians on the island of Crete had to be different from everyone else there on the island. Christians needed a remodel of sorts. They needed to make sure that their doctrine was right, their beliefs were right. But Paul is also saying, Christian, we need to make sure that our actions are right, that we're living a life devoted to good works. So our main point for this morning is a life built on the Lord will result in a life devoted to good works. Faith will lead to actions. Actually, I I like saying it this way. Faith will be displayed in action. They're not separate. They're together. And yes, there's going to be growth in you and I, right? There's going to be sanctification. There's going to be sin. There's going to be failures. We're going to not understand things fully. We're not going to do the right thing all the time. We're not going to be perfect. But comfort, idleness, continual sin, inaction, it's a dangerous place for Christians to live. And I'm fearful that too many Christians just kind of stay in that place and think it's okay. If you and I are not evaluating our lives and asking the question, what tangible evidence is there in my life that faith is making a distant difference in us? We've missed the point of faith, which is action, which is fruit. We'd be living as if we had built an addition on our home and refused to leave it and refused to use it. So there's going to be four questions that we can take from this chapter that I think will help us evaluate whether or not we're living a life devoted to good works or not. So we're going to dive in in verses one and two, and we're going to ask the first question, are you living differently from those around you? Let's pick up in verses one and two. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Remember, Paul just said to declare these things. Make it clear that this is what Christians are supposed to be like. This is how we are called to live. And why is this important? Because it was completely different than the way the Cretans lived. This would not have defined them In fact, these were the things that were opposite of what the Cretans celebrated. They celebrated things like um, selfishness. They celebrated things like taking advantage of other people to get what they want, to put other people's down so you look good and you could advance. 
That's what the Cretans were like. And Paul is getting after this idea that who we are, our, our testimony, our reputation in society should be different. And it reminds me of the, the words of Jesus when he said, let your good works be seen. Let them shine before all men. Why? So that they could see their good works of the Father and he could get glorified. People would come to believe in him. How we interact with society matters. And we should be different. We should look different to the onlooking world. But Christians often choose one of three relationships with society. The first one is to assimilate. Say, hey, I'm just going to fit in. If they're doing it, I'm going to do it. If the world says it's good, just count me in and I'm not going to be any different. Even though I go to church on Sundays and believe, you're not going to see any difference Monday through Saturday. I don't think that's what Paul is calling us to here. The second option that we can often choose is to leave. We can say, hey, I'm in a society that does not have Christian values. They're not pushing things that, I, that I'm comfortable with and I don't want to be tainted. I don't want to be influenced in a negative way. And we're seeing that, aren't we? People are leaving California all the time to go to conservative areas because they don't want to be influenced by culture. And so rather than, than taking that influence, they make the decision to leave. The third choice that I think people make is we just can get into loud conversations as Christians. We're not assimilating, we're not leaving, but we sure are going to let everyone know our opinions. And we're going to be really angry about it, we're going to be confrontational about it, and we're going to be quick to let people know how wrong they are and how right we are. And I don't think Paul is suggesting any of these three things for us. He's encouraging Christians to engage with culture in a different way. He's engaging with them to say, be different to be gracious, to be kind, and to be patient. Because we're new creations in Christ. And because we're new creations, there are new behaviors expected of us. And Paul breaks down these two categories of people in these first two verses. The first is rulers and authorities. And he gives us these words, submissive, obedient, and ready for good works. What is he talking about? He's saying, hey, I've put these people in charge. I've put these people in position. No one gets any position of rulership or authority without me putting them there. And God is saying, by submitting to them, you're ultimately submitting to him. You're trusting his plan. You're trusting his work. You're trusting his purposes. And Paul's saying, submit to them. Show them the respect that they deserve. And he says, be obedient to them. When they ask us and, and create these laws for us that don't violate God's word, we need to obey them. We need to be people that are good citizens that are following the laws that are put before us. And then this last phrase that he uses is this idea of being ready for good works. And it means that we're going to cooperate with our city. We're going to be here for their good. We're going to jump in on projects that involve the whole community. We're going to be active, not passive. We're going to be looking out and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to input something positive and beneficial, beneficial for the people here. And then he goes on to list this other group of people that it's literally all people. So we're all, everyone is in this one, right? Even, even rulers and authorities are in this one. And Paul lists this, this list for us. I'm not going to go through all of them specifically, but it says, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy towards all. Let's just take that first one. Speak evil of no one. How are you doing in that? Isn't it so easy when a name's brought up just to start talking about them? 
just add in one more little negative comment. Someone gets that ball rolling and it's just a snowball, right? Or we're having a hard day. We got into an argument with somebody and our first thought can always be, I'm just gonna talk evil about that person. I'm gonna slander that person. And again, this is not the life of a Christian. This is the life of a Cretan. And they take that lifestyle and it was infiltrating the church. Their beliefs were infiltrating the church. And here's what stands out to me about this list. I think sometimes we can get involved with cultural engagement because we just want to see things change. And let me say this, I think that that's good. I think it's great. I think it would be awesome if our society adopted Christian values. If Christian beliefs were accepted again. But Paul's saying, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm asking you to do is engage in culture in such a way that you will be a light in darkness. That you will be a little Christ to people. That you will come and you will teach the truth, but you'll be kind about it. You'll interact with people and they'll see something different about you. We can bring light. We can be a vessel that God can use so that he can do his work. He can bring the change. I think this is so important in life. God is responsible for the result. We're responsible for being faithful and living this way. We can get so discouraged when things don't change. But we're reminded here that God's saying, just be faithful. Keep doing it. Keep living it out. Keep treating people differently. So I encourage you, think about your attitudes. Think about your actions. Even think uh, towards the posture that you have towards other people. What do you think of them? Are you different from the world around you? If not, we need to ask why. If not, we might not actually have the right motivation to live this way. And that's going to lead us to our second question, which is, are your good works motivated by grace? Let's read verses three through eight. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now catch this. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What stands out to you in that passage? What do you hear? It's a beautiful summary of the gospel. It's a beautiful summary of our testimony, if you're a Christian, of who you were before Christ and the work that he came to do to justify you, to wash you clean, to sanctify you, to give you the Holy Spirit so that you have the resources and the power you need to change. This is who we all were before Christ. Enslaved to passions, enslaved to sin, hating one another and hated by one another. But this is also how all of us can be made right and be made clean before God. And that's through Jesus Christ's death, life, and resurrection. And what Paul does here is he says, now this should motivate you to something. The grace that God has shown you should influence how you live. And he isn't saying that you and I should be different because we're better than other people. He says we should be different because we've been saved by grace. See, our good works should be motivated by the grace of the gospel. We're not repaying God. 
We're not trying to put others in their place. We simply are people who have been changed by grace and want to extend that grace to other people. Do you see the order there? We're sinners on our own. We have nothing good to offer. Yet God in his loving kindness and mercy saves us. Not because of who we are or what we've done or what you think you might deserve. He changes us. He makes us new. He justifies us. He gives us hope. He gives us power for change. And then we live it out. Then we devote ourselves to good works. And if we get this wrong, our motivation for good works will be wrong. If we think works comes first, we're going to try to earn salvation. If we think works come somewhere in the middle, we're going to try to do good works to prove something or to get recognition from other people. And Paul's saying, look, none of these capture God's heart. This is not why God wants you to do good works because none of them will last. None of them are true motivations for you to literally give of your own self and give your life to other people. He's saying the motivation for good works is grace. And he says this, this saying, and that's this, this, these phrases here, these verses three through seven, that's a poem that Paul has used in other places with other people that he's, he's helped the gospel be clear uh, in other churches. And he says, this is what's trustworthy. This is what we must insist on. This is the truth that we need to fill each other's hearts and minds with over and over because it's a summary of what sound doctrine is. And he's saying, listen, we have to stress this. We have to share this because when it's stressed, it's heard. And when it's heard, it's believed. And when it's believed, it's put into practice. And that's what it's after. Because he goes on to say there, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We're called not just to do good works. We're called to devote our lives to good works. There's a big difference. Devoting yourself to something means that we've set something before us. What have you devoted to yourself to in your life? What are you devoted to now? What have you set before yourself that says, I am going to accomplish this? The last thing that I can remember is uh, finishing a thousand piece puzzle at a, on a vacation. <laughs> so I like doing puzzles. Uh, we were up at a cabin up by a lake and I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do this thousand piece puzzle of all these old Disney pins. Yeah, that's what they had in their closet. So that's what I decided to do. Uh, and I devoted myself to, you, to this. I'll tell you what, day two, I was pretty much going to give up and I'm like, I can't. I got to endure the crink in my neck and the sore back. I'll take some ibuprofen and I'm going to look for those pieces under the, the couch that I can't find. But I said it before myself, right? And I'm like, I am going to do this. I'm going to accomplish this. I will finish this no matter what it takes, right? And that's the idea here when it comes to good works. It's us saying that I will do this. This is going to be something that is important to me. And again, it's motivated by grace. It's not just mustering our own strength, but it's giving us this, ourselves this posture that my head is up, that my eyes are looking out and my heart is open to what God might be doing that I'm looking for these opportunities that God is putting before me to accomplish these good works. I'll say this, I, I think we are in such a rush today, in our age today. I think we are so concerned with getting from point A to point B that we lose sight of all the people and all the good works that God has set before us on the way. We need to slow down. We need to keep our eyes open and our head up to see who God is bringing in our path 
instead of being so focused on our own plans, right? Because if I'm not devoted to the good works that God has set before me, I'm gonna be devoted to the good works that I put before myself. And if I do that, then I'm gonna be the only person on my mind and I'm gonna miss so much. And I'm not asking you to be busier than you are now. I'm talking about devoting your lives to things that Paul describes as excellent and profitable for people. Imagine that's how you got to answer the question when you came home, what'd you do today? Oh, just some things that were excellent and profitable for people. (laughs) That'd be awesome, right? If that was where our heart was and that's what we were devoting our lives to, it doesn't mean we forsake all of our responsibilities, but it means that we're looking for people and opportunities to minister because we've remembered what God has done And so because he's been gracious towards me, I'm gonna show grace towards others. Because he's been kind to me, I'm gonna be kind towards others. Because he has forgiven me, I will forgive others. Because he loves, I will love. That's what it's about. It's like that song we sang last week. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. We're pouring out our lives in such a way that brings honor and glory to God and pours our lives out as a sacrifice and offering for the good of others. That's the devotion that he's calling us to. That's the lifestyle that he's asking us to live. People should experience grace through us because we've experienced grace from Christ. So next, Paul warns us that it's not just about being different. It's not just about being motivated rightly. It's also about making sure we're not getting trapped in the wrong conversations, getting stuck in these time killers that keep us from being fruitful and productive. So our next question to help us stay devoted to good works is, are you choosing your conversations wisely? And let's look at verses 9 and 11 to dive into that a little bit more. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Man, this is so relevant for today. Between all the arguments we can find on YouTube, the the videos that we can see on TikTok, people trying to poke holes in faith in the Bible, coming up with a religion that that suits themselves and their own passions and pleasures rather than truth. And the question is, how do we engage in these? Should we even engage in these? And this has been a question for thousands of years, and it was surely a question for Paul and the people on Crete, because at that time, there's these two groups of people that loved to gather. One one were this group that practiced philosophy, and they were genuinely seeking the truth. They wanted to find answers to life's biggest questions, and they were humble, and they were seeking They were genuinely saying, I don't know everything and I'm trying to find the answers. And then we have these other group of people that practice sophistry. And what they did is they basically got together to debate for debate's sake. They just wanted to argue. They just wanted to win. They wanted to prove that they could put the other person to shame. They weren't seeking the truth. They weren't humble. They weren't engaging in such a way that says, I genuinely want to find the answers here. And I'll just say this, if you are coming across people that are genuinely seeking, that is a good conversation to be a part of. That is a good thing for you to engage in. But if you're just coming across people who love to debate for debate's sake, I would suggest and Paul would suggest that we need to consider whether or not we should engage in that. And we probably shouldn't give too much of our time to that. 
And Paul is including these categories of conversations that include foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. We're not going to dive into all of those, but that word genealogy there is interesting. It's actually talking about a form of horoscope. And what they would do is they would go and look back at those genealogies and they would look at names and they would look at dates and they would look at these time frames in between people's births and all these different things. And then they would try to discern the spiritual insight into their life. Almost like there was this hidden mystical idea that they could find only through this genealogy. And Paul is saying like, look, all of these conversations, like the genealogies, like the quarrels about the law, they all have things in common. They're unprofitable and they're worthless. They're not pushing us towards anything solid. They're actually abstract and hypothetical. And remember, Paul just got done spending a chapter and a half talking about how important sound doctrine is. And not only how important it is, but that we can actually know it and that we can believe it. That we can come to understand it in a way that we can put our faith in it. And all of these areas that he brings up here, they fall in the category of false doctrine. Because what they teach and what they produce is opposite from the gospel and truth. They don't bring us towards God. They don't bring us towards grace. They pull us away from focusing on the things that are important and helpful to living this life. Friends, we have too much to do. We have to consider what types of conversations we're engaging in. This takes wisdom. We need to pray about this. We need to think about this. Not every time you have a chance to speak, you should take the opportunity. Think, that, think about that for a little bit. Yes, you have a voice, but when should you use it? Thankfully, Paul helps us here and gives us guidelines for people who love to stir up this kind of division. He says, talk to them once, warn them, talk to them twice, then have nothing more to do with them. I think it takes a couple of times to talk to a person to really know what's going on in their life and in their heart, to see if they're willing to hear the truth and respond to it. But I think, remember that anytime we engage in these conversations, the goal is to restore that person, to open their lives to the truth so that they would believe that they would stop wandering from their ways. And so Paul isn't just saying, forget them. He's saying, hey, don't engage in this if they continue in their warped and sinful ways. If that's who they are, you have freedom to step away from that. And I know this seems harsh, but these people, Paul says, are warped. That means that they have been and will remain off track. They're going down a road that is not good. They're leading and persuading and pressuring other people to join them. Engage in this conversation. Come believe this thing. Doubt scripture here. Doubt scripture there. And Paul's saying they're off track, and yet they're acting as if they have biblical authority, and they don't. It's like, don't stay near them because they're sinful, he says. And that word sinful there, it means that they're continuing in sin. They're wrong and they're, they're erred and they have friends coming in and speaking into their lives and they ignore it. And because they're sinful, he ends saying they're also self-condemned. And that suggests that even though they've, ref they've received correction, they refuse it. And they're actually participating in their own condemnation because they're without excuse. It's not that they didn't hear the truth. They chose to reject it. And it's been refused. Friends, people who stir up doctrinal division are not to be taken lightly. They should not gather most of our time. We should be seeking people who are genuinely trying to find the truth. 
We should engage in conversations that are excellent and profitable for all people. And I'll say this, looking at myself too, this isn't just something that we need to be aware of of people out there. This is something that we need to make sure that doesn't define us. That we're not engaging in conversations that are leading other people astray. That are worthless and unhelpful to the things that really matter. It's a hard conversation, especially for me, someone who sees the good in people, who just thinks if I have one more chance, I can get them to turn their ways. But we gotta seek the Lord in this and make sure that we're not being taken away by these time killers and avoiding and getting into the right conversations. All right, our fourth and final question that we can gather from today's passage is, are you developing God's grace in others? And thanks to Philip, I don't have a lot to say about this passage, but it was really good hearing you say it with your accent. So thanks for doing that. But let's read it anyways and pull out a couple of things. So uh, picking up in verse 12, when I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me and the Copolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So Paul ends this short letter here by actually returning to addressing Titus specifically. So he has these final instructions for him that he wants him to complete. And he's just kind of laid out this plan for how uh, Titus can lead the charge in reforming and helping the church strengthen and mature. And then he goes right on to remind Titus, but there's other people that need to be involved in this ministry. And so we're just going to take a, a look for a minute or two here at some of these people and see what we can glean from it. But really what Paul is doing here is he's reminding Titus that it's not all about him. Faith and the church advancing is not all about him and it's not all about me and it's not all about you. Paul says he's going to send Artemis and Tychicus. Artemis, this is a, a guy that we don't see mentioned in scripture anywhere else but here. But we know that Paul sees something in him, knows something in him, that he's going to send him to the island of Crete to help with this important ministry of building sound doctrine and building a life of good works. And I just want to say, take heart. Most of us in this room, myself included, are not going to be remembered when we die. When your time at Foothill is done, you're not going to go on a wall of fame and a plaque that says you accomplished a ton of things. But your ministry matters. The sacrifice, the life that you live, the serving every other week with kids, serving coffee, coming in, loving people, being a part of growth group, being a part of class. All of those things matter. Doesn't matter if anyone else recognizes us because God sees and he knows our labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain, whether someone here on earth recognizes it or not. God is pleased and one day we're gonna stand before him and he's gonna say, well done, good and faithful servant, if we devote our lives to good works. The second person he mentions here is Tychicus. Uh, we know a little bit about him. He was imprisoned with Paul and Paul often sent him uh, ahead to churches to deliver the letters that he was writing to them. But both of these men were sent by Paul and when they get there, what does Paul want Titus to do? Look, he says, I actually want you to leave Crete. I want you to come to meet me in Nicopolis in the winter. And yes, that means he has some time to get there, but Paul is just setting up Titus. And Titus is probably like, great, let's get ready to go. Wait, what? You, you want me to leave? How's all this work going to get done? And Paul's like, it's okay. 
We got it. Other people on Crete need to develop. Other people need to be invited into this process. Other people are part of the plan that God has for the church. And so most likely one or both of these men would have taken Titus's place to ensure that the church was in good hands and heading in the right direction. And there are these people here in Crete that he needs to develop to make sure that the ministry goes beyond them to generations and generations to come. Two of those people men mentioned are Zenos and Apollo. So they're here on the island of Crete. And either they were the ones that brought the letter that Paul just wrote to Titus, or they're there to serve for a little bit and they're getting ready to be sent on their way. Zenos the lawyer, again, someone never mentioned anywhere else in scripture, but his title of lawyer tells us that he was likely an expert in either Jewish or Roman law, which meant that he would be a great person to go out to all the nations, be able to engage people where they're at and bring the gospel to that. And then Apollos, you probably heard him more than any of these other names. Uh, he's the most that we know about in scripture. He was converted uh, and his story is in Acts 18 and 19. And he's also mentioned in 1 Corinthians where people are trying to build um, this battle between Paul and Apollos. Almost like, uh-oh, Paul, Apollos is doing a lot of good work. More people are being saved than you're getting saved. And he's like, I'm, I'm not a part of that division. If Apollos is bringing the gospel and people are believing, let's help him. Let's send him on his way. Let's make sure that these two men have all that they need to accomplish the work that God has set before them. And then he tells us about this final group of people, which just is our people. That's the brothers and sisters in Christ that are part of the church in Crete. And what does he want them to do? He wants them to be fruitful. He wants them to learn to be devoted to good works. And he wants to make sure that their eyes are open so that they're ready to help in any cases of urgent need. And that's what this, set, this life built on the Lord is going to look like. And that it's going to take all of us to use the gifts that God has given us, the resources he's given us, to say that we're going to see the ministry of the church advance where he puts us. For them, it was on Crete. For us, for the time being, it's in the San Gabriel Valley. But this is what it would look like if our lives are devoted to good works. So as we wrap up this last question, I just want you to think about who are you equipping? Who is in your life that you're developing? Who are you pouring into in such a way that your time, your resources, the wisdom that other people have brought and given to you for your life, you're now passing that on to someone else. We should all be encouraging someone this way. We should all be part of the process of developing that next generation of people who are going to be serving and eventually leading the church. And so as we wrap up the book of Titus, I feel like we've covered so much, so many practical and helpful insights in what it looks like to build a life of faith, a life of knowledge and godliness. And if there's a theme that you can take away, I suggest that it's this. If you have built your life on the Lord, you must also be devoted to good works. There's no separating the two. Jesus didn't save you to be comfortable. He's working, he's moving, he's active, he's alive, and he's inviting you and I to be a part of it, to be a part of that good work that hopefully will bring people to him. And as we build our life on the Lord, may we pour out the love of Christ to those around us. May we be a place that's developing others and stirring one another on to good deeds. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful uh, for your word and your truth. So thankful that you opened up um, our eyes and our hearts to see and understand and believe. 
And Lord, as you've done that in so many people's lives here in this room, God, I also ask that you would give them the strength and the courage to now devote their lives to good works. May they consider their lifestyle compared to those around them. God, may they be motivated by the grace that you've extended them. May they be sure to engage in conversations that are profitable and beneficial. And God, may we invest what you've poured into us and what others have poured into us into those around us. God, we need your grace and your wisdom to do this. I'm, thank you, I'm thankful to be surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who's, who really inspire me and encourage me and are participating in that. But God, I just pray that you would help us grow in this, to walk in this, to live this out. And Father, I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.